When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you don't have a clear curriculum for your classroom, it is so overwhelming to try to put that together yourself. Spending hours on Pinterest and Google, pulling worksheets and pulling pieces of curriculum together to make something that works for your classroom. That's why we created the Autism Helper Curriculum and now offer Curriculum Access. Curriculum Access gets you access to all levels and all subjects of the highly differentiated evidence-based Autism Helper Curriculum. You can have students working on letter identification and working on parts of speech at the same time in our easy-to-use curriculum. We currently have hundreds of teachers using Curriculum Access from all over the world with consistently rave reviews. I want you to join that group of teachers. Now is the time to ask your administrators for curriculum access. We have an email template ready to go so you can ask them to set up a demo. Your administrators can jump on a live call with our team members to see everything that's included in the Autism Helper curriculum access. Next year, let's reduce the overwhelm. Let's start the year out with a path and a plan and resources to meet all the diverse needs of your students. Let's make next year the year of curriculum access. Head over to the show notes to learn more. Hi, I'm Sasha Long, special ed teacher and board certified behavior analyst. Welcome to the Autism Helper Podcast. I'm here to explore different strategies to improve the lives of individuals with autism. Hey guys, I know a lot of times I tell you that I'm really excited for an interview, but this time I am really, really excited for you to hear this interview. Today I'm chatting with Ashley Rose. She's a BCBA and the owner and director of Mission Cognition. Her clinic focuses completely on social skills. I was so excited to talk to her because not only is she an expert in the area of social skills and how to utilize the principles of applied behavior analysis when working on those skills, I realized that I have not yet talked about social skills at all on this podcast, and I love social skills. It was really fun to talk to her and really think about how we can use our ABA principles and strategies in a successful way in the classroom. And we cover so much ground. We talk about why approaching social skills is a daunting task. She works a lot in schools, so we talk a lot about how teachers can embed social skills into all areas of their instruction. We talk a ton about how to utilize play and the different levels of play and how to take data on it. There's just so much good stuff. And really what I hope happens after you listen to this conversation is that I hope that you are very inspired and motivated to really up the ante when it comes to how you approach social skill instruction with our students. Because I think sometimes we have this idea that social skills are of secondary importance. Like, oh, we got to get to all those academics. And then if there's time, we get to social skills. And social skills are just as important 
arguably more important than those academics. And it needs to be part of everything we do. If you teach learners on the spectrum, as Ashley points out, your learner has some deficit in the area of social skills. That's part of the diagnostic criteria. So we want to ensure that we're addressing this all day, every day. And if we think about wanting our kids to become independent adults and have all these great opportunities, think of how often you have to be social, like all the time. Sometimes it's draining. Sometimes you go home and you just want to watch Bravo and not talk to anyone if you are like me. Because we live in a world where most of our jobs and the way we get what we want and need is all rooted in social interactions. And yes, with great things like, you know, online ordering and Amazon, we have to talk to less and less people, but we still do have to interact with a lot of people on a regular basis. So our students need us to teach social skills in a meaningful way. And what I love that Ashley says is that there are no prerequisites for social skills. You can work on social skills at any level. For your early learners that really have foundational skills, aren't yet verbal, you can and should still be working on social skills with them. So I'm not going to keep talking because I really want you to hear this episode. Let's jump right in. Hi, Ashley. Thank you so much for joining me. I am really excited to chat with you about social skills today. My pleasure. Same here. I I always kind of like hearing what brought people to the ABA world. So do you kind of mind sharing what brought you to this field and what you do now? I would love to. It's actually one of my favorite stories to tell. Um, (laughs) But I was sort of cringing and also smiling when I realized that I've been in the ABA world now more than half my life and that one of my very first preschoolers just turned 21 and I think oh gosh um, aren't I still 21 Um, so you know that one hit me a little bit hard Um, but I fell into the world very much by accident Um, I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do with my life career-wise I was stuck between uh, maybe being a kindergarten teacher or an FBI agent and I feel like I kind of um, have that happy medium now I'm doing something in the middle Um, that is by the way the most amazing description of ABA that I've ever heard across between a kindergarten teacher and an FBI agent. Yeah. Like I want to be this, this detective and solve all these interesting cases, but I also really love kids and want to do art projects. So this is a, (laughs) you know, like a mess of all the worlds for me, but, um, yeah, very, very much fell into it by accident. I was working as a mother's helper for, a um, a family and youngest son happened to have autism. I really knew nothing about autism at all and honestly was pretty uncomfortable and nervous. Um, And looking back on it, I realized that it was just because I didn't know anything about it. And you get kind of uncomfortable about things you don't understand. Um, So he was a three-year-old, cute as can possibly be. And um, this mom just looked at me and was like, you need to go to school for this. This is what you need to do. And I was like, oh, you know, I don't know. I'm not (laughs) sure. And she sent me to, well, first she sent me a a lot of books and resources. um, And then she took me to the three-day intro to verbal behavior with Dr. Carbone. Um, So I was 18 years old sitting in the front row of this (laughs) three-day conference. I'm like, that's amazing. What are they talking about? (laughs) Like, this is awesome, but I have no idea what this means. It's a totally different language. Um, But it just, it felt so natural for me. Like, you know what? She's right. This is what I was meant to do. So really from that day forward, I just, you know, read as much as I possibly could, attended as many workshops as I possibly could, and then sought out formal education. So I really did things backwards, but I think it all worked out fine. 
Yeah. And so what do you do now? Um, so now I own social skills centers. So I did the in-home um, one-to-one ABA model for years. I worked in school districts as a consultant. I taught inclusion pre-K. Um, and I was really seeing, wow, there is such a need for behavior analytics, social skills instruction. Um, and I was seeing that lacking from a lot of the programs I, w- I was working with. And I thought, I think there's such a need that we could really run this as a standalone program. Um, so six years ago, I opened a very, very, very small office to do just that. And we've been very fortunate um, to have grown in the way that we have. Um, we serve about about 70 um, to 100 students, upon the pond, time of year, uh, learners with autism, ADHD, oppositional defiance, anxiety, speech and language delays. Um, I really don't care so much about diagnosis. I'm really looking for if the kids are struggling socially or behavioral in any way, they're potentially a a candidate for our service. Um, So in center, that's all we do. We run social skills groups. Um, And then once I've I've sort of really formalized that model and it's replicable, I now train other providers who are are interested in replicating our service delivery model or or growing something that they they currently have, um, which is really exciting for me. Yes. Oh, and it's such, you know, I've talked to us on the podcast before. It's such a common misconception with ABA that we only deal with, you know, problem behaviors and decreasing negative behaviors. And to see someone whose whole career is focused on building up social skills is so exciting because obviously it all plays a part together. But I've walked into many of an IEP meetings and introduced myself as a behavior analyst. And they're like, oh, they don't have any negative behaviors to decrease. Why are you here? Why are you here? (laughs) (laughs) I serve more than one purpose. Um, I I know. What's so exciting to me is that people will come in here and say like, this is ABA? What? Yes. Because we're not sitting (laughs) at a table doing 10 row trials. I'm like, oh, it's a science. We're just, it's the most natural application of the of the science is what you're seeing. Um, so that's been really cool for me too, is to sort of um, redefine some some people's conceptions or really misconceptions of, of what ABA is. So I, I really love yes. that. Yes. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. So I'm excited to kind of, you know, get into the social skills topic because I I don't know if you see this, but I see a lot of teachers almost shy away from touching on social skills because it's overwhelming and it's daunting. And I think sometimes there's some worry that like everything I need to be doing needs to be academic. So maybe I just don't touch that stuff. Do you see that? Absolutely. Um, And I think it's social skills has become like this pull out model. So I'll see things like lunch bunch groups, or we do this 15 minute social skills lesson in the classroom. Um, And certainly that's better than nothing. Um, But I really want to encourage folks to work towards embedding social skills instruction in everything that you do. And I completely agree that it's something that's become sort of almost scary or it's this separate entity and you need this very, very specific training to do it. Um, and certainly you do need need training and support and you become more experienced as you do it to do it more naturally. 
but I, I want to move away from this reliance on um, this curriculum or like this off the shelf curriculum. I, I really want teachers to be more confident in their skill set and say, okay, I understand typical development. I'm interacting with my kids in the classroom every day. Here's the barriers or challenges that I'm seeing with them getting along with one another, getting along with me. Um, and here's how I can work to address that in a systematic way. And there's so many class-wide things that we could be doing. I mean, you have a, a classroom full of, of kids. Look at how many opportunities there are for them to interact with one another and practice those skills throughout the day rather than just, you know, a 15-minute standalone time. Yeah. And it's it's part of every academic activity. You know, we're in whole group instruction or small group instruction. We want kids to take turns and listen to their peers. Like it's going to be embedded into all of these academic areas of our day naturally. Absolutely. And it's just, I think, reframing how we look at things. So my big push, um, you know, personal pro professional goal for 2020 is to really emphasize this embedded instruction in everything that we do. So I'm so happy to be able to talk about it with you. Um, and just like the examples that you gave, if you're looking at any sort of academic activity that requires partners or a team, what specific skills or target behaviors are we looking for within that team for it to be successful? Contributing ideas, listening to the ideas of others. You have that social problem solving. What if you don't agree? Giving feedback, accepting constructive feedback. So those are all specific measurable behaviors that we could be targeting. Um, and I think what tends to happen is, and I don't want to overgeneralize because I'm sure there's certainly um, teachers that, that are working on this, but a lot of times in my experience, you just wait for problems to arise. So then there's a challenge and you're telling kids, you need to work better together or you need to share ideas or you need to do this. But what if we could do that in a more structured way antecedently? So what mm -hmm. if we could present exactly what the specific skills are ahead of time? role play it with the kids, let them practice it, and then go and utilize those skills in natural situations where, where it really matters, which would be that, that group type activity. Um, and I, I don't think it needs to take a lot of time throughout the day. Um, the more we do it, I think the more fluent it, it becomes. But I, I think the, the benefit to that is really um, going to be pretty significant long term. Yeah, I love I love that point that you made about, you know, teaching it ahead of time and not just waiting for the problem to be there. So let's kind of like maybe talk through an example. Let's say a teacher, I don't know, first through third grade kind of self-contained room has a small group of kids with, let's say, you know, decent verbal skills and they're going to do a reading group together, three or four kids. How can a teacher kind of set the stage and you can make up kind of what social skills they have and don't have? What what things can the teacher do before they jump into that group? So what I've started to do with that age group is I run through sort of what your body should be doing. So your eyes should be looking at the speaker, ear should be listening, body turned towards where your hands should be, where your feet should be. That's all social in nature already because we don't want to be disrupting the group, right? So then yeah. I would pick apart, okay, well, what specifically in my reading book, reading group am I looking to do? Do we have one peer that's the reader and other kids are starting to ask questions are we giving compliments? Oh, I love how you changed your voice when you read that part, or that was very exciting. Whatever those examples are, you want to make them very explicit and then role play them ahead of time. So you could say, um, oh, when a peer is finished reading, we could say something like, oh, that was really awesome. I love how you X, Y, Z, but maybe next time you could X, Y, Z. So I love how you use so much emotion, but could you read a little bit slower next, next time? So in that example, it's just a very specific way in which you would be giving feedback. 
Um, so I, I would look for that as my target behavior in that example. Yes. And I love, you know, that, that role play. It's always fun to see, I don't know, I'm sure you see this all the time in your groups, see kids really mimic like the way you talk and the language you use. I realized like annoyingly what, like I say awesome a lot because kids yeah. will be like, wow, that's awesome. And I'm like, oh, they're getting that from me. <laughs> Yes, it's so funny. We we do um, an intensive weekend workshop a couple of times a year. So other professionals come in and, and um, sort of our routine has become that the kids convey to the professionals what they think is important for them to be teaching. Um, and one of our groups last year wanted to create a video for them and they ran an entire social group. And it was hysterical because so many things really were mimicking me, like exactly just mannerisms. <laughs> and I thought, oh yeah. gosh, think, you know, I'm coming across very kind and fun, good, you know, because you, you <laughs> never know. Um, but they pick up on so much. And when I talk a lot about the modeling, I'm, I'm really referring to, um, the teaching package, which we would call BST or behavioral skills training. So that instruction, modeling, rehearsal, feedback. So letting the kids know exactly what the skill is that we're going to be learning. Uh, depending upon your population, you could potentially provide a rationale. So um, it's really important to be able to accept feedback because if you don't, you know, this is what could potentially happen. And then showing them exactly what that looks like. So you would model it or you would role play it with another skilled, either another teacher if you had one available or, or another student. And then the kids would all have a chance to role play that together to get some feedback or contact reinforcement. And then the most important part is to put them in a situation in which, again, they would have to naturally use that skill. So that's happening during the school day. That's happening again and again and again and again. Um, just because of the structure of, of the classroom, you know, being with so many peers, you're constantly having to interact with, with someone else. So let's really give them the skill set they need to be able to do that as effectively um, and successfully as possible. Yes. And they're going to have, you know, so many more opportunities in a classroom versus like, you know, in a one-on-one -on -one setting. So you may as well take advantage of that. <laughs> yes. And it's, I've gone into so many classrooms and really it's more so in um, our self-contained classrooms. And I, I hate this terminology, but when, when we, I think a lot of times when we have instructors who have a, a lower functioning population, you sort of have this conception, or I'll say misconception again, that they're not ready for social skills. And I will always argue that point because I, I really truly feel there's there are no prerequisites needed for social skills instruction. Just being a human being is all you need. Um, are those social skills targets going to look different from learner to learner? Absolutely. Um, we're going to have different priorities. But everybody really needs to be working on it. And, and I'm talking about even our, our babies, our 18 month olds that, you know, maybe are, are newly diagnosed. We should be working on social skills, even with them. Um, and it's going to look more of just a reciprocal interaction, things like playing patty cake or peekaboo and just getting some good functional eye contact and shared, um, shared positive affect. Those are all really valuable skills. And that's where we're, we're targeting the core deficits of autism. So sometimes when I go and do classroom observations and I'm there for two hours and it's kids sitting pretty close to each other and there's been no facilitation of interaction between them, I'm like, oh, we're missing so many opportunities. Um, and I certainly don't think it's because someone doesn't care, doesn't think it's important. I think it ties back to wow, social skills are really difficult. They're very nuanced. They're kind of scary. I'm not sure if I know how to go about doing this. 
Um, and I yes. think that's really our biggest barrier or obstacle right now. So I'm, I'm hoping that we can support um, teachers at getting some concrete strategies or at least one takeaway. Hey, starting tomorrow, this is what I can do. It's one step toward um, you know, embedding social skills instruction in, a, in everything we do in our classroom. I mean, one step, that's great. Yeah, I, that's that's a really good suggestion because I think, you know, as as we're talking, I'm like, oh my God, yes, embed it, do it, everything. And right. sometimes when that idea is there of like, you're like, oh my God, that's so overwhelming. What's, you know, that that's a, so that's a good suggestion. Just start with one thing. So how can a teacher that's like listening to this, like, oh my gosh, I'm not doing enough of this. Where, where do you really start with this on picking skills for students, defining these skills? Obviously it's going to depend a lot on, you know, the types of learners we have, but where does a teacher start to make progress and move in this direction of really embedding it into all areas? I think it's trying to reframe your thought process. So when you do see things like challenging behavior, looking at it as, have I taught them what to do instead? Um, and if I haven't, let me really focus on that. So I do a ton of modeling. Um, and when I taught, when I was teaching pre-K, you know, you have center time or you have free play. There's always tons of conflict. Nobody's sharing. Somebody's using this thing. I want to use that. They're touching my stuff. Um, so you can easily go over and say, you know, if you can't play nicely, nobody plays or you need to be here. You need to be there. Um, but instead, I really try to get down on their level and and focusing on that, that functional communication training piece. So teaching them the language to get their wants and needs met. What could they be saying instead um, that's going to be as effective for them as hitting the other kid or snatching the <laughs> item? So it's so much modeling. Um, and if you have built that rapport with your learners, um, and if you don't feel like you have, that has to be your starting point. Um, you really need to create a positive culture within your classroom. You have to be excited and happy to see every single one of those kids every day. Um, because once your attention is functioning as a reinforcer, once um, social praise is, is reinforcing, you can do so much more. They're really going to be attending to you and they're going to be imitating the words and actions that you, that you model. Um, so model, model, model. Yes. And it's that ongoing. Like, I oh, like yes. how you keep like repeating this, like, you know, even in that example you gave about that small group instruction, doing, doing that kind of antecedent intervention every day. Like I, I get asked sometimes like, well, how often do I have to do this? I'm like, every day. What do you mean? Like all the time, just keep doing it. You never stop. Like, yes. And then you'll just work to different skills. That's all. Yes. But yeah. Same, same routine. Just, Absolutely. And then it becomes, you know, as a teacher, part of your repertoire and your routine, you're like, oh, this is just what I do now. And, and that's the thing. I, I think, you know, teachers, well, I, you know, I have so much on my plate already, so many re responsibilities. And I've been out of the classroom for a long time. So I, um, but knowing the administrative work I have to do in center, I still feel like I haven't completely lost touch. I, I don't want it to be something extra that gets added to your plate that you don't have time for. It's going to be one of those things that does require more of a time commitment initially because it's new for you as the teacher. You have to find your stride. I need to become more natural and fluent for you. But as you said, once you're consistently doing that and it just becomes part of the routine, I, I mean, you're, you're going to get it. And it, it shouldn't really take more than, you know, three, three minutes or so prior to each, to each lesson. Because once you get the routine, the kids get the routine and, and you'll really be, be a well-oiled machine at, at that point. Um, it just takes some time, some time initially to, to hit that. Yeah. Like kind of shift your kind of behavior, your behaviors. Absolutely. Really. Yep. 
Yeah. Um, all right, let's talk about play in the classroom. And I'm excited to talk about this because I I have been that teacher that pulled out a board game and bingo and I felt guilty. And I don't know why. Even like looking back at my own behavior, I'm like, why did I feel guilty? But you get stuck in this, you know, I, I got to hit those IP goals and common core standards and it has to be academics, academics, that when you break from that for a second, even if you know, like, I'm working on academics by working on bingo, and this is working on all these other great skills, you have this like guilt for some reason. That's totally not behavior analytic, but you know it's what so, I mean? No, I, I, I completely understand. And it's, I don't know why we feel that way because I always redirect everybody back. If you're working with an autism population, look at the DSM. A child doesn't have an autism diagnosis because they can't label 50 animals or they can't, you know, find red or touch their nose. That's not why. Um, everything is related to play and social skills, essentially. So if we're not prioritizing those areas, yes, we could be making gains in other ways, um, but are they as long-lasting and as meaningful um, compared to if we would have targeted th those core deficits? So I do think that a lot of times when we do incorporate play, it tends to be at a lot of times too high a level. So with mm -hmm. those structured rule-based games, they re that really is cooperative play. Um, what about our population of kids that don't care about winning or losing or don't understand the concept of the game? Then those kids are just sort of going through the motions of the activity. And then how much benefit is there really to that? Um, so I do think it's very important that we understand the developmental levels of, of play um, and how we can collect data, uh, baseline data, really, of where the kids are starting, and then what strategies we have as teachers to scaffold um, and facilitate them moving toward higher levels of, of, of play, really. Um, yeah. And if we have listeners who are working um, with early learner self-contained classrooms, where there's no functional play skills repertoire at all. And we have a lot of kids in, in center who come to us like that, who are engaged in just, um, you know, restricted of, or repetitive action. So picking things up, looking at them out of the corner of their eye or lining, lining them up, flipping cars, spinning wheels, those types of things. That's really going to be critical to prioritize building um, a functional play skills repertoire. If the kids cannot play on, on their own, they can't play with others. And if they can't play with others, how do you start to then at some point teach higher level social skills? Um, you really can't. You're going to plateau and there's going to be so many missed opportunities for, for later learning. Um, but we talk about social skills being hard. Teaching play is hard. Teaching, teaching play, play is, is really, really hard. hard. Yes. You know, nobody wants, and I give this example all the time, nobody wants to be like crawling around on the floor, looking all fun and silly and have a kid who'd rather look at a paperclip, you know, yeah. that really like that hurts our, our ego for sure. Um, and if we talk about what we know about reinforcement, if our behaviors aren't contacting reinforcement, then we're less likely to engage yep. in them. So if I'm playing and being fun and I'm not getting a child joining in, or I'm not getting that positive affect, I'm like, Oh, you, you know, you feel like such a, such a failure. Um, and then people, whether they realize it or not, you start to go back to your comfort zone, which in my experience has been um, more structured teaching where I'm going to say this, you're going to say this, or I'm going to say this, you're going to do this trial by trial data, nice and clean. Okay, I got it. Um, 
And some programs we have to run like that, but play, we really can't run like that. Yeah. Um, and we can't quit. We can't quit play. You have to keep on doing it. Um, so you just need more training in the levels. And, and likely it's just that you came on too strong or started at a level that was maybe too high. And that happens. We all make mistakes, um, you know, but but look at those mistakes, learn from them and, and make changes. And try something different. That's, yes. you know, I, you need that on a shirt, like play never stops. But yes. yeah, if what you're doing didn't work, shift what you're doing. Mm-hmm. With those, you know, those early learners that you talk about that really don't have a play repertoire yet. I know I can like picture people asking this. So where do you start with them? What are you going to jump in and, and try right away? I usually I know obviously focus, that's individual, but. Yeah, it's, I, it's a slow and steady wins the race on this one. Um, my first step is really just to get the kids to acknowledge my existence in the first place. So I try to lure the kids to me rather than following them around. Um, so I'm following their lead to a sense, but I'm not following them. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. So if I have a child who's just sort of wandering around, around the room, if there's unstructured time, engaging in a lot of stimmy stuff, um, Hopefully I have some information maybe from a parent or another teacher about what they might like, but really I'm just going to start pulling things out, engaging with them, playing with the actual toy or material. And then I'm watching out of the corner of my eye. Did that child pause what they were doing? Did they um, orient toward me? Did they make eye contact with me or with the activity? Did they start to approach? All of those behaviors are going to give me very, very critical and valuable information which will help me with this decision-making process of should I continue to do what I'm currently doing or should I do something else? So if I'm playing with some sort of activity for a good you know, 30 seconds or a minute and this child has shown no acknowledgement of me whatsoever, all right, try something else. Try something else. Um, and I'm, and I'm going to continue to look for that. Then once they join in, I'm very careful with demands that I, I place. I'm really focusing on pure play. Um, And what I mean by pure play is I want that spontaneity, which is why I want the kids joining me. I want positive affect. I want some variation. So it shouldn't look so rote and structured. So I'm not going to tell the kids what to do. I'm just going to do things, um, try to set up contingencies in which they're motivated to maybe imitate what I'm doing or, or join in. Um, and really focusing on pairing myself with reinforcement, that being with me and being with the activities that I'm doing um, is really uh, exciting and fun and enjoyable so that they'll want to do more of that. Yeah. Oh, my God. There's so many good points in there. One, I think so often we don't realize that we're placing demands when we're playing. Like, <laughs> you just, yeah, you just, you do it on accident. You know, you're like, no, the car's supposed to do this way. And you're like, no, 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 it doesn't have to. Um and I, and you know, in so many classrooms that are understaffed, you know, a play area really just becomes downtime or break time. So I hope that people listening kind of get, get inspired to maybe have, maybe you have two play times in your classroom. One that is purely a break because you don't have, you know, staff and that, you know, that child needs some alone time. But then you have another play time where you're in the play area too and you're, and you're playing as well. Absolutely. Um, and, I think there's some things that we could do in terms of the type of activities that we have out, how they're organized. Sometimes I'll go into classrooms and the um, quote unquote toys that are out are more academic in nature. So it's things like um, shape stackers or sorters. And I look at those things. I'm like, well, they're close ended tasks. So if, 
if you really just want the kids to go over there and fill independent leisure time, absolutely there's value in that. If you have any parents that are listening and thinking, I just need five minutes to run and take a quick yes. shower and know that my child's safe. Hey, if they're sitting on the floor and they're doing a shape sorter, that, I mean, that is, you won the lottery with that. That's fantastic. You're so pleased. Um, but if your focus for that population is that peer-to-peer interaction, then you're going to want to move away from activities like that. It's not really that exciting for me to say to a peer, hey, check out my octagon. Watch me put this octagon in the shape sorter. You know, I mean, that's just not typical conversation. Yeah. Um, so you want to move more towards open-ended type play sets. But then for the paraprofessionals in, in your classroom, being able to give them the support of what can you actually do with these play items? So I like to have little cards or maybe a binder, something of that nature, um, easily accessible in the play area. So you know what your level, if, you're, if, you, if you utilize the VB map, for example, you know what your level one learners could be doing um, in the play area or what level two or what level three learners would be doing. Um, or for us, we, we typically def- define the kids or categorize based on their play levels. So I use Dr. Parton's um, six stages of play. So it's unoccupied, solitary, onlooker, parallel, associative, and cooperative. And then we do a heavy level of um, heavy amount of training for staff on what all of those levels look like, and then strategies for scaffolding to the next level. So if you um, observe your kids in the play area during unstructured free time, so it's just go play and no staff are facilitating anything, I would collect some just basic data on what they're doing during that time. Are they unoccupied, meaning they're engaging in stereotypical behavior? Solitary, are they playing completely alone? Um, Onlooker, are they observing others, kind of hanging back and watching what other kids are doing? Parallel is um, two or more kids in close proximity to one another. They're playing with similar toys, but they're not interacting. So they may not be showing any awareness or acknowledgement of another um, player with them. And then now you're going to get to the social levels, which is really where we want to scaffold to once there's a functional play skills repertoire in place. So once the kids know how to play with toys, we then really want to see them playing with each other. So at the associative level, that's when you're starting to see things like commenting on own actions. My horse is running. Um what we would call initiating bids for attention. So, hey, check it out. Look at look at this. Look what I made. Trading, sharing, um, making requests to share. So, can I try that when you're done? Or um, requesting information. How did you do that? And then at the cooperative level, they're really working together toward a common goal. So it's let's build a castle. I'll build the bridge. I'll build the tower. Um, So once you really understand those levels and you can break down what specific skills make up each, um, it's a great foundation for you to then start to to facilitate those interactions and then scaffold to the next level. Um, So I think that's very, very empowering for um, any staff that you have in your classroom who are responsible in any way for supervising a playtime. Um, know what it is that you're looking for and know that that time is actually valuable instructional time. It it doesn't need to just be a sort of a a free-for-all or downtime. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for talking through that because I think that would really give someone a purpose versus like, why am I sitting here in the play area? And I loved your description of how you take data because that is something you know, that a teacher could easily do tomorrow. You could get a baseline of all your kids' play skills tomorrow and it wouldn't take all day and it wouldn't, 
you know, be this time consuming thing, but you'd be able to at least know where you're starting and have an idea of what to do next. So that description was so great. Thank you so much for kind of going through the details of that. Okay, guys, good news and bad news. Bad news is I had a lot of technical difficulties recording this episode. And unfortunately, this is where our episode ends. It cuts off abruptly. I hate it so much, I promise you. I tried to fight with my computer. The last few minutes were just gone. But good news is, because Ashley was so helpful and gave so much great information, I really think we need to have her back on the podcast. So she is super busy, but I'm going to try to ask if she'll be back on because this episode to me was really filled with action items. Like I think you should re-listen to it with a pad of paper and write down things that you want to do immediately because this is an area that I think everyone can really improve on and it's such it's so valuable for our learners. So if you want to learn more from Ashley and find out more about her, you can go to her website, missioncognition.com. She's also on Instagram and Facebook there and learn more about her. And again, I'm going to try to have her back on because I think that this is an area that we are all excited to keep learning about. If you would have told me a few years ago that my favorite part of my job is getting up in front of sometimes a few hundred people and giving a presentation on data or behavior academics, I would have thought you were crazy. I did not always like public speaking. Actually, to be totally honest, public speaking was something I used to be pretty afraid of. But now it's literally my favorite part of my job. I love being in a room of my people, of the special ed world, teachers and parents and clinicians, and everyone that's on the front lines that's working so hard for our students to give them the best opportunities and the best classroom experience. I love being in a room of everyone that understands how hard this job can be, but also how amazing it is and how important those little victories are on a daily basis. When I do a PD, my goal is to bring value. I wanna bring action items, ideas and strategies that you can do tomorrow in your classroom. I have sat through too many professional developments that either didn't apply to me or were too hypothetical and philosophical. And my special ed heart always wanted to know, what do I do next? What do I do tomorrow? If you are interested in learning more about how I can come to your school to do a professional development, please visit theautismhelper.com backslash speaking. There's a contact form as well as a lot of information about all of the different sessions I give. I'm happy to answer any questions and work with your school district. Thanks for listening to the Autism Helper podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, hit subscribe. It would mean a lot to me if you left some feedback. Whether I'm working one-on-one with a student, doing a podcast like this one, or presenting for a PD, my goal is always to provide as much value as I can. So your feedback really helps me make sure I'm doing just that. If you have other topics you'd like me to cover, leave in the feedback or message me on social media. You can follow me at The Autism Helper on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Pinterest, or visit my website, theautismhelper.com. Thanks again for listening.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Having the right resources for your classroom is essential to making sure your classroom is running smoothly. At the Autism Helper Shop, we have all of the resources you need to make sure you have the behavior, communication, and curriculum supports for your students. Within our shop, we have adapted books, task cards, resources aligned to the VB map and the ABLES, behavior plan flowcharts, data sheets, curriculum. Everything you need, whether you are an early childhood teacher or a high school teacher, we have all of the resources that will meet those students' needs. So head over to shop.theautismhelper.com to check out all of our resources.